This conversation is brought to you by Fuller Seminary. Now available at Fuller, a new way to learn and community this fall with youth, family, and culture cohort. This online cohort offers new students a youth-focused pathway within the Master of Divinity, MA in Theology, MA in Theology and Ministry, or MA in Intercultural Studies degree. Interact with Fuller's world-class faculty as part of a tight-knit cohort and benefit from tailored course sequences, dedicated cohort advisors, career planning support, and a commitment to whole life formation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash youth cohort. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, we want to thank you for your ongoing support of CBF's podcast. We also want to let you know that if you have authors, practitioners, or other people that you think we should feature on the podcast, be sure to drop me an email at ahale at cbf.net. That's A-H-A-L-E at cbf.net. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's conversation is David Zoll. David is the founder and director of Mockingbird Ministries. He serves as the college and young adults minister at Christ Episcopal Church in Charlottesville, Virginia. David, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks so much for having me, Andy. It's a joy to be here. All right. We know your credentials, but uh, take us a little bit more into to your story. Tell us more about you. Well, uh, I'm the son of a pastor, of a minister. Uh, my father's a theologian, and uh, so we grew up um, like not every, I guess not every pastor's kid grows up moving around a bunch, but my, I certainly did, even though we we're uh, Episcopalians, not Methodists, but uh, grew up in the Northeast of uh, sort of New York area and then moved around. He ended up getting his PhD uh, in theology later in life. And so we moved to Europe when I was in seventh grade and just kind of uh, moved around quite a, bunch, a bit. But I'd say like a lot of kids who grew up in the church, especially with like a sort of a high profile parent uh, with a collar, um, I but it wasn't that I wanted to have nothing to do with the faith, but I was not not gripped by it in any regard. It was sort of what you did. And um, once I got to college and high school, it sort of drifted away. Um, uh, I'd say I had a real conversion experience my f- couple years out of college, just living life, relationships, all the sort of normal failures of uh, early 20s life. Got involved in some um, a really wonderful Bible study with some people. And um, before I knew it, I was being employed as a youth minister in boarding schools in the Northeast because I'd gone to one. And a lot of these schools, you know, they've got some sort of Christian fellowship group, but without much direction or support. So I did that for five years and then um, got engaged and I uh, was thinking about um, next steps. Did I want to go seminary ordination process or did want to sort of try to do something a little more, I don't know, out of the box or creative and had the opportunity to move to New York City with with my with my then wife and start this organization called Mockingbird. And Mockingbird is a it kind of has grown into something more I think you could say than how it started. But it uh, 
it's a really, um, I, I guess a, it's an organization that looks to connect, connect sort of Christian theology and especially with this heavy emphasis on the grace of God with all aspects of everyday life. And so we do that we, in practice. We're almost like a media platform. We publish print journals and we publish a very active website. We have an app and we do conferences and we do blogs and podcasts. And, um, you know, it's sort of grown over the years to sort of a, it's a non-denominational um, creative uh, venture that seems to um, serve uh, folks and um, my writing with I've I've really enjoyed editing that website over the years, but that's been 13 years now, Andy. So um, I think you can look back and maybe see a time when organizations were transitioning from print into new media or the web. And Mockingbird, um, we started on the web and kind of moved moved into print afterwards. So I, at the time, it felt like there was no precedent for it, but I look back and I see a lot of publications and online communities and even online ministries that were started that then kind of took more root uh, as sort of the, we figured out how to use the internet. But yeah, that's a, that's a very, very, uh, you know, uh, uh, God's eye view of it. Yeah. Tell us about the name Mockingbird Ministries. Well, Mockingbird refers to um, the bird, uh, you know, its unique ability to, you know, repeat the, uh, the song that it's heard and you know mockingbird is kind of a mimic and we hope not to be mimics but we do we do feel like we're not making this up that we're um, repeating um, the gospel message in a way that both non-christians and christians need to hear and uh, yearn to hear and uh, that none of us ever sort of graduate from our um, from being uh, someone to whom the gospel is addressed so that's what it's like. I, I and also kind of had a you know we wanted a name that would ask uh, cause people to ask what it meant, and that's what it. Meant. So as uh, you know, you, you talk about um, you have writings, um, podcasts, which, of course, you know, of course, as a good guest, you would say that you would want people ultimately to use this podcast as a primary source. Um, <laughs> but uh, what what's your vision and, and target audience? Well, um, the vision is we, we, we consciously, at least at the beginning, it, maybe it's a cop-out, but we decided to sort of um, pool, find, find a, a group of people that sort of had a common heart, a shared heart for um, really um, articulating the, you know, the, the historic gospel in a way that, made, um, that spoke directly to the demands and um, pressures of daily life in the 21st century and from that we kind of put it we really i mean it's it, maybe it sounds pious but we put it in god's hands and said where do you want it to take us and since then i feel like doors have opened and we've never been at a loss for things to do so we don't really have a vision outside of saying you know what um this this all this stuff in the new testament about um, people feeling like they need to justify themselves according to works of the law. That is sort of seems to be all around us in the 21st century. And yet no one's really made, connecting the dots between Christianity. If anything, justification, things like that were, um, were kind of reformational concepts were almost in disrepute. And so, um, but our target audience was, yes, there, there's a hope that uh, Christians who are tired and who are maybe discouraged might hear the, uh, a note of comfort, but also to really address a hurting world. Um, 
that needs the words of life in the same possible way. So everything we write, at least everything I write, um, is written with both the, with really a non-Christian audience in mind. And I think though that our actual audience tends to be um, an interdenominational group of uh, Christians who are maybe, some would say, uh, a little in need of encouragement. So heavy laden types. I mean, uh, some I've also heard our audience described or characterized as maybe uh, a little um, heady, uh, and that's never our intent, but the context in which we're coming from was all sort of people who had um, been brought up in, you know, uh, schools and um, maybe overachieving uh, backgrounds that had wreaked just as much havoc in their own lives as um, underachieving backgrounds. or contexts uh, reek. So I don't know if that does that does that sound does that make sense? Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating. Um, what tends to be the the topic that draws the most attention from your readers and listeners? Well, uh, a number of things. I, I think that the way we talk about grace, as it you know, um, as you know the central revelation of God being Jesus Christ and and the central revelation of Christ being the cross and his gracious disposition towards sinful people. And anytime we talk about grace and its fullness and how that plays out in relationships is always a big um, place of a connection with other people. Um, I would say we, we try not to, we don't really get into church politics at all, but um, anytime we talk about, um, I mean, uh, we'll talk about pop culture and people seem to like that sort of pointing out various themes of law and grace and, um, and forgiveness and absolution and repentance and sin, um, and redemption in, you know, works of popular culture, but it's not really, it's not supposed to be a pop culture focused, uh, work. It's, it's more, um, I think it's more uh, broad than that. We we write about technology and social media that usually gets traction. Sometimes talking about gender, which is a very hot button thing today. Uh, uh, I've written a lot about food, to be honest with you. And um, I kind of col- in the book that we're going to talk about a little bit later. I I sort of collected some of my favorite subjects throughout the years, which are really. Uh, talking about relationships and talking about careerism and talking about uh, um, parenting. Parenting always gets a lot of, uh, because people feel so um, so much condemnation and accusation around their parenting. I think that uh, it, it, it draws readers very quickly. So yeah, I would, that's, that's a, that's a very small overview. What's your, what's your greatest hope for, for Mockingbird? Well, it's hard not to, you know, not to laugh at oneself when you say this out loud, but, you know, I guess with God, all things are possible, but I would love to, um, rebrand, uh, Christianity in a way that doesn't immediately conjure up, um, uh, negativity for so many people in a way that it, or at least that, uh, or judgment, I would love to see, uh, Christianity, um, seen as a measure of comfort, um, and salvation, you know, actual, and in the in the midst, it'd be great to uh, re- rehabilitate uh, I, things like justification 
as, as not just being a first or second century concern, but it's the every single day of our lives. Um, I mean, I'd love to see people come to know God, and I'd love to see, you know, uh, the increasing, what I would say, waves of secular uh, aggression or just just the, the, the magnetism. I'd love to see people um, have some pause before accepting some of the presuppositions that are uh, I think are predominant in our cultural discourse right now. Hmm. Uh, let's take a little deeper into to where you serve. I and mean, you're in Charlottesville. How long have you been in Virginia? And um, you know, knowing what's happened within that community in the last couple of years, uh, what's it like ministering there? I've been in Virginia for a solid ten years at this point. Mockingbird was founded in New York City, but because of financial pressures and whatnot, and just pressure period we we moved out of new york and to charlottesville and yes it's a strange thing because you know not only did we have the big uh demonstrations of 2017 where um, the heather hire was killed um, and being really ground zero for a lot of that uh discussion i had all of a sudden people living in japan asking me what's going on in charlottesville and it, it happened andy it happened right outside my office window. I mean, I'm not, I'm not lying. It's right outside my office window where all that went down. So that was, um, I'd say, but, but there's been a, a, before that there was a, um, a parade of national news stories about Charlottesville. Uh, there was a Rolling Stone article that was published about uh, fraternities and, uh, sexual assault. And that was very disturbing, very disturbing for anyone who cares about the university. It ended up being fabricated, but there was a, a woman that went missing. It's, it's. I think Charlottesville, at least in this mid-Atlantic region, represents some kind of old-school institutionalism that um, maybe can be a target for folks who are mad about those things. Um, and there is some, you know, there is some sort of inherited. There's definitely some inherited sin here, just like there is anywhere. Uh, but in the wake of that particular incident in 2017, I mean, people were very raw. They were very, um, they were very um, upset. People on all sides of the sort of various political divides that you know I serve, people who feel strongly about our left and right and center. Um, I think there was shell shock. I think it was hard for it to be a national conversation so quickly and to become weaponized. This is a modern term, but uh, when you're talking about people that you actually know. You know, and at my church, we had to actually clean up, physically clean up, you know, the barricades that the Antifa had, had put together. We had to um, put away, you know, Nazi paraphernalia. That was not, don't, no one cleaned up after it. We did. So that was, and, and, you know, the police had asked if they could put snipers on the roof of our church. And, and our, our sense was we want to keep people safe, but that feels like a, not sending the right message from the church. <laughs> yeah. And that's a surreal, that's a surreal proposition. But at the same time, it's so what an honor and a privilege to get to be the, um, you know, um, an avenue of, um, of healing in the midst of what was a very difficult time and continues to be. And, and for some people in Charlottesville, a lot of them said, oh, it's everyone out there who's to blame. And there was, um, how dare people come in and attack our sort of unfallen little hamlet. And that's, that has its own challenges because I don't think that's really a very biblical way of seeing things. But, um, 
yeah, to walk through that. And as the national sort of spotlight was on us for there a few weeks, it was it was heavily pressured. I had to preach the week after it had happened, and um, that was uh, the hardest hardest uh, preaching uh, assignment I've ever had. Ministers are used to snipers at church. This just typically comes in the form of an email or somebody coming in your office on Monday to talk about what you preached on the day before. <laughs> that is true. That's true. I think uh, that should needs to be said too. Well, I mean, you've, you've, you've kind of conveyed this, but I mean, how, how is the events that happened in Charlottesville um, formed you as a minister? Well, I think it, um, you know, there's a there's a tendency to abstract. In my tradition, in the Episcopal Church, there's a there's a whole lot of talk about social justice that can um, get very abstract, and you start to view people as objects of your, that need your help and constantly. And I mean, there's there's what some would say a laudable impulse behind a lot of it, and it's sort of you know serving the least of these and and you know um, rectifying injustices and working for reconciliation, but it can also very quickly become a a an exercise in uh, feeling good about yourself um, and justifying yourself actually through uh, you know checking a box and I think that that event it brought it very home to to people it also showed you what the church can do that no one else can do, which is provide a place not only of for, to talk about these things, but to bring to bear the mercy and forgiveness of God, and not and and while also to sort of name the you know detestable acts of violence that occurred and the and what's at the heart of the divisions, you get to explore those things. So it shaped me as a minister, and that it, it it forced me. I would have loved to run away and not talk about things, you know, it would be um, Jonah, you know, just go in the opposite direction, but. Um, I think the call on my life was to be there among those people and to see how God has worked to heal divides, in, especially in our immediate context, which are definitely black and white. But probably the deeper divide here in, in, in Charlottesville is uh, blue-red. And that's um, that people tend not to be um, upfront about that in the same way or even aware of their um, vilification of the other. Uh, it feels like it's somehow justified. People think it's justified when it relates to politics. But uh, I'm just, I'm just sort of probably rambling here. But that's that's some of the ways in which it's. You also, but to also go through a community, go through something like this with a community, it, it bonds you to other people, and you get to see, you start to love other people, and you also see people at their worst. And um, get. I remember after it happened, it's like, oh, I, I don't feel I can leave right now. You know, if I wanted to, if I got another job, I, I would have to sort of stay. So were there very fine people on both sides? <laughs> I'm just kidding. You I, don't have to answer that. I, I asked that with, you know, tongue in cheek. So. <laughs> it was definitely not. Yeah. I don't know what to say. It's okay. <laughs> you, yeah. can, you can plead the fifth there. So uh, in April, you released a, a new book, um, Seculosity, How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance become our new religion and what to do about it. Uh, this is a deeply uh, theological discourse about the new religion of busyness and being informed and innovative in technology overload and self-aggrandizing parenting. You wrote religion, religious crisis today is not about the waning of religion, but about too many things. So what was going on in your spiritual journey and your vocational journey that you needed to write about this? 
Well, you know, it had a little bit to do with 12 years of writing from the web and being uh, on the front lines of the cultural discourse and seeing what it was that did get traction as I wrote it and what I felt like that God, what kind of insight had God given me through that process, if any. And so much of it had to do with observing the ways that ostensibly non-religious arenas were starting to function that way for people. And the anxiety uh, that with which we are all straddled today, and that is just kind of like just kind of eating at us. Um, it's not so much, you know, it may not be as well, how can I stand before a good God, but it certainly um, it certainly has to do with, you know, am I am I smart enough? Am I thin enough? Am I wealthy enough? And I was starting to see from my experience in the church. Um, I've been in the church long enough, is you know, 20 years or so, to see what when when the church is at its best and when it's not, and what it feels like to be in a good church where people are can be transparent and can you know are confessing their sins and able to receive God's forgiveness and, and are sort of even transformed. But I've also been in churches that are not as good, where everyone's sort of uh, monitoring each other and there's nothing but uh, people leave with a feeling just super guilty all the time. And that that second part, that kind of uh, religion of of when when grace gets taken out of the equation, when when a, when church just becomes about the law and what you should do and must be and what you aren't living up to, that was how it was starting to feel like to go to the gym and to go to uh, you know to to read a parenting book and or even hang out with modern parents and uh, of co- and to say nothing of like our political tribalism. So I felt like it was something that I, I I could connect the dots in a way that and use all of these examples that I'd been collecting throughout the years. It felt like a positive contribution, not just to sort of the culture is bad, but more like the as we as we think we've gotten less religious, in fact we've just gotten more religious, but in the wrong kind of way. And uh, let me show you what a what a religion of of grace looks like or feels like. What what it's we know what it's like to be alive in the 21st century. It's to feel like you're you're not you're on a treadmill and that you're about to uh, you know just completely keel over. But uh, here comes you know um, Jesus Christ who is. Uh, the Prince of Peace and the, you know, the, whose who's, who's burden is light. And wh- what does that actually mean for us today? So I thought it could be a, a work of, apologetics is the wrong word, but you know, maybe um, phenomenological uh, cultural criticism that really has at its root something hopeful, which is the gospel. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. So, I mean, you kind of got to it towards the end there. One could read the book and take the tone and message of it to be um, 
curmudgeon is the word I'm looking for. You know, the old guy screaming to everyone to get off his lawn with their rock and roll and dancing in heathen ways. So how do you how do you strike a balance between being prophetic about our culture and faith and and also being hopeful and pastoral? Yeah, well, I think that, first of all, I think people, it, um, you cannot remove yourself from it. I'm not the guy in the house. I'm the, one of the people on the lawn. And it's much more of a sense of, like, hey, oh, my goodness, we're here on someone else's lawn. Uh, what am I doing here, even though I know I shouldn't be here? So uh, I, the stuff I wrote about was all uh, phenomenons I could identify from uh, within rather than being above in any, so I am a parent of small children. I am a person who is a foodie, but also, you know, deals with, uh, you know, body image things. I am a, a person who is addicted to technology. So I'm not, I'm not talking about it from above. And I, I think that what I've been told at least is the tone of the book that, that makes its way into the tone of the book. It's like a with, I'm with everyone in this rather than above them or yelling at them. But the second thing is, as I think that people feel known and close to close, to, very close to being known if, if they sent, there's a sense of compassion behind it, because I think that none of us, where rarely do we wake up in the morning and think, you know what I want to do? I want to feel really anxious about everything today. I think that part of that, it doesn't mean we're not complicit in our own misery because we are, but there's, if you can, if you can describe with compassion, what it's actually like to live under these sort of replacement religions. I think people feel known and then they feel that that's very close to feeling loved. And uh, if you can identify these things and then bring the gospel to bear and every chapter sort of ends with a description of what it might look like not to be, um, or the glimpses I've been given in my life or in, that I've seen through the years, um, you know, of, of what grace and practice looks like, of what, how, you know, God's work in the world, how that actually plays out. I think that that's tremendously hopeful. Um, and that said, but the ultimate hope of the book is not, is really not in people understanding something better. Uh, the hope, the book casts its hopes on, on God to be the actor and the uh, deliverer uh, and who God says he is. So that's why it's hopeful. You wrote, it sounds like I'm complaining about the superabundance of activity when in truth I actually prefer it that way. Idleness makes me far more uncomfortable than busyness. A blank to-do list considerably more nerve-wracking than overstuffed one. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about busyness. A recent study found that we work, uh, uh, you know, 130% of our waking hours. You know, it's, we're just a multitasking society. But I mean, I guess the question, you know, I was contemplating as reading this is, uh, you know, are, haven't we always been doers? I mean, if we, if we take the iPhone out of our hand when we're sitting on the couch at night and substitute it for a newspaper or switch out the live streaming service with a radio or, you know, remove our 65 mile per hour car with a slow moving, you know, buggy and horse or email and text with snail mail or removing uh, typing away a computer with hunting and gathering and so on. Um, are we not just making life more efficient instead of being becoming more pious towards you know this culture of religion? Um, well, I do. Th I do think we have been doers. We're, we're we're you know we're created to you know we work and we um, we use our hands and we do all sorts of things. Um, 
I think that there is something about the way the the internet or smart technology has changed things that that can't be denied. Like, because I've heard that over the years, and I've been the person saying it. It's like, well, we've always been, we've always been uh, hyperactive, and we've we've always been uncomfortable with idleness, and idleness is the, it's not good. I I think we're so far from a place of being too idle that it doesn't to to, to warn against the dangers of idleness is almost uh, it's ridiculous. Well, I'm asking kind of, you know, um, if if we've always been hunters and gatherers, if you will, like, uh, in a sense, I, I kind of feel like uh, what we do with our hands now that that cause us to be busy is just a substitute for what generations before have, have done. So, um, you know, I guess in a sense, yes, we I, I feel we live in an overabundant and always pushing forward society. But in a sense, I guess I feel like we've always been that way, historically speaking. Um, we tend to always yeah, I mean, push ourselves forward. I don't think the problem is our times or our or our cell phones, but I do think that they happen to be a, um, a they they're, they're pushing on something that's already there. They're exploiting Silicon Valley is exploiting, uh, a, maybe even perverting, you might say, a very good urge to do something and contribute to the world. But they're also taking the dopamine a person receives from that and knowing that if I just provide a little bit of a tag onto that, I can make you continue to work until you're never not contributing to my bottom line. And I think that that's, um, that technological aspect is something we cannot really ignore, especially if we care about people's uh, social uh, um, spiritual lives. So uh, the one sense, the, the wanting to be your original sin, there's nothing new under the sun. I believe that 100%. And yet what, um, what the world or what companies or what technology is doing with original sin seems to feel particularly unsustainable in at least a few areas I mentioned. You might go back to the 1950s or the 1850s, and there were other things that felt unsustainable. There are other things that were driving people and making them feel terribly anxious and, and full of, uh, you know, um, um, guilt. But these are the ones today, certainly. And, it, and, and to more and more people, it seems to be like that it's just increasing with no end in sight. I do. I, I agree with you there. I, I you know, it's, um, we tend, we tend to, to push our minds, uh, beyond the capacity they're capable of as if we've, we've got to catch up with some sort of pace that we believe exists out there. Like we'll be left behind if we're, <laughs> if we're not there and you are staying on top of things is another in, increasingly treasured form of righteousness. More and more, of us compete over being well-informed and feel guilty about, you know, falling behind. And what I hear you saying is that we've become slaves to the culture of now and, and up to date. So, you know, for, for those listening as they, they contemplate, um, you know, standing in resistance to this kind of form of life, um, Mm -hmm. you know, how do they, how do they live uh, outside of this pace when their when their jobs and their livelihood depend on living in this pace, if that makes any sense? Well, that's the great question. And the book uh, dodges giving people another roadmap to feel like they're not, not doing correctly. There's definitely, there's, uh, when it says what to do about it, I, um, you can give people practical advice. You can tell them, you know, things like, uh, you know, going to church is, you know, where you're dealing with a sort of a, a group of people and you're receiving and you're not on the end of the production end of stuff. I mean, I think that that's, uh, you're, 
maybe even you're praying or being silent, who knows? That can be a very subversive act in, in, today, in the sort of a cult of productivity in which we live. But I also wanted to, again, I think that we're so programmed right now for engineering our own righteousness, our own enoughness through these um, ladders that we invent for ourselves that I, I wanted to avoid. I wanted to point to God who delivers people from that. So yes, I recognize that our livelihoods increasingly depend on keeping up. What do you do with that? Well, I don't think um, if you're in that sort of a job, you can't keep it up forever. Like no one can. I wish they could. Uh, but, uh, you know, how do we build our, some humanity back into those things? Uh, I, I don't really know, but I know that there's, that the time clock knows no mercy and that, um, the same with the weight scale and same with the bank account. And yet, uh, there is, uh, mercy to be had. It's just coming from God. So again, maybe perhaps it's sort of, uh, thinking about these things, not as though it's a, um, an arbiter of enoughness in my life. My my job is not going to be the place where I ultimately find my justification, but that will be a gift from God. And, um, but again, my the re deeper hope of the book is that he, there is only so many hours in a day and a human being can only do so much. And the closer we get to the act of surrender to the wheels coming off the bus, I believe that's where God meets us. And that's where faith uh, in another is uh, created its birth and um, th so in that sense the worse it gets the better it gets uh, because we're getting closer to a collective breakdown which maybe sounds maudlin but I, I always think that I, I try to give plenty of examples in the book but you know we, we worship a God of death and resurrection um, and so that's good news for people who feel like they, they can't keep it up anymore let's talk about food. You, you wrote, we are not what we eat. This of course is a take on Antel Breton Savarin's famous phrase, you are what you eat. Um, now I would dare say that if you eat uh, a chili cheese hot dog with fries, then you will very much feel like a chili cheese hot dog with fries internally and soon encounter what comes out afterwards. But you know, what, what we consume affects us neurologically and uh, gastrologically and, and psychologically and spiritually. So I'm on board with, with what you're arguing. What we consume does in fact um, define us or it, it, it kind of propels us um, to a certain direction of life. And uh, what I found fascinating about your book is that in a sense, you know, uh, we look at all these aspects of culture that pushes us to this, this culture of uh, more and always having enough. Um, but if we take a step back and consider a different type of um, food for our lives that we consume, it begins to bring about um, a balance in our life, uh, a dependence on God. Um, I guess scripturally speaking, Jesus would talk about this as daily bread. Uh, take mm -hmm. us a little, a little deeper there. Well, food is just so, so. I mean, because well, you're you're 100 right, and that what you consume is not somehow neutral. That you're gonna. If you eat food that's uh, you know uh, that's gone bad, you're going to throw up. And if you eat, uh, sometimes uh, you know people will say, uh, "I feel you know like God is distant, and I, uh, I'm, I'm going through a dark night of the soul." When what they really need is a nap, you know. That's and to, and to, to eat, start eating something that's not a chili cheese dog. So I want to acknowledge that up front, and I try to, in every single one of these chapters, really provide a disclaimer. Like, food is still important, the way it's sourced, these things are good. But today we've gotten into what I see increasingly is a, uh, such a, um, 
I open up with that thing about uh, Jim Gaffigan, who is um, would rather be caught. He, he's caught at, uh, at McDonald's from a, a friend of his sees him at McDonald's and he falls all over himself to make excuses as to why he's there. Um, like that it somehow it would be preferable, socially speaking, to be at McDonald's to meet a prostitute than to buy food. And that's sort of, that something is very off when that's the case because lots of people are eating at McDonald's. And so um, the questions we ask about food and the religious intensity with which we kind of, uh, and the anxiety surrounding it, I think is very, it's become a deeply moralist, not moral, but moralistic uh, enterprise. So it's, um, it's a very small leap. When I say moralistic, it's it's not just that you can eat something that's bad for you, but if you do eat that, you are then for a bad person, and that is um, uh, that's everywhere. And I see it a lot of uh, the anxiety, at least in my community, which is a lot of very people that are probably too thin or too health obsessed. It seems to be that there's a there's an over um, uh, food has become in, invested with the entire meaning of life. And the truth is, uh, when I'm, um, you know, uh, drowning in the ocean, I don't need someone to throw me a, uh, you know, a sustainably sourced uh, piece of chicken salad. I need, um, I need a, a savior. So um, anyway, that's, you know, and I, I talk in there about how, you know, when last time someone, you used the word cheat, you know, people tend to have used it in relation to a diet than than a spouse, and and that we we talk about uh, food almost in the same way we used to talk about sex. And there's a lot of um, there's a lot of purity involved. Um, you know, today you have people criticizing what, what quote unquote purity culture, which is usually just um, whatever was to more conservative than your own personal <laughs> view of things, but. Uh, there around food, there is a sense in which if I can just eat the right thing, then I will be the right person. And that's what the book is. That's what that's trying to, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to punt to St. Paul about, you know, uh, food will not bring you closer to God. And, um, it is not what goes, what goes into you that defiles you, but what comes out and trying to uh, get into the slightly deeper questions surrounding it. But you have, if you have a culture like ours that struggles so much with both overeating and undereating, what, what's going on there? What, what is, what are the needs that are trying to be met that I think are spiritual uh, in nature and not just physiological? And so that's, that's where that, it's that. That's probably a brief overview of that chapter. But I have to poke a lot of fun at myself because I'm, uh, it's certainly my own form of self-medication. Well, you hit on parenting, technology, food, politics, and romance. What, what didn't make the cut? Uh, sports didn't make the cut. Uh, and everyone who I, who I like, my, whenever I've been talking about the book the last few months, people's like, why didn't you write about sports? And the truth is, um, I don't know as much about sports and uh, I, I didn't, again, I wanted to write about these things from within. The other one, Andy is definitely celebrity. Um, and if I could, you know, maybe for a soft cover edition, I'll, I would love to write a, something about celebrity and how we laud and magnify and uh, scapegoat our celebrities and, and how that works out for us and what kind of guilt we're trying to expiate and, and uh, what kind of atonement we're, we're trying to achieve through the, our treatment of celebrities. The 
<laughs> the irony of you not writing on sports is the week this book released in April, the University of Virginia Cavaliers won the national title in basketball. <laughs> Yeah, that's not lost on me. I mean, and I was <laughs> I was as excited as anyone. You know, it was it felt like deliverance, and there are a bunch of bunch of wonderful guys. And but all of a sudden, you know, I contributed nothing to that to that uh, uh, victory, and yet there's this vicarious redemption, which is I have a sudden I'm saying we won, we won, and I didn't do anything. But that's a very <laughs> Christian dynamic. That's imputation, and uh, so I laughed and. Um, you know, I also saw, I also, you know, you, like any of these things, you see what sports could do for a community. You see the amount of hope, especially after what happened to us in 2017 and, 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 in, and what happened to us in basketball in 2018. There's a real uh, beauty to that. So, again, none of this is not to denigrate any of these things I'm talking about. It's really to, you know, maybe hold them a little more lightly and therefore more joyfully. What's your uh, greatest hope for the book? Um, that it'd be a comfort to people and, and to those who maybe, um, have always wondered why someone would want to be a Christian, that they might, um, be spoken to and might, 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 might see that. I mean, I'd love to, I've been told it's a sort of a bridge building book, uh, by its tone and by its content. And, um, that's the best possible response I could hope for is that it would build bridges between people because, this stuff, this righteousness and justification and uh, salvation, these things, you know, they, these dynamics don't just apply to people within the church. So um, anything that can bring us closer. And also for those who are, I think, sometimes Christians, I think, get bashful or maybe they think that uh, this is a real reminder that religion um, is not as weird as we sometimes fear it is. In fact, it's there, it's all everywhere. And the real question in life is what kind of religion rather than if. Uh, but again, it's not really a book about idolatry so much as self-justification. For those that want to stay connected with David, you can follow him on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. You can visit Mockingbird's website, which is mbird.com. Go out and purchase Seculosity wherever books are sold. Uh, David, thank you for inviting us to contemplate, contemplate the religion of more and inviting us back into a faith in Christ that is enough. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. And uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Well, that's it. That's our episode. Be sure to check out our annual sponsors' websites, the Center for Congregational Health at healthychurch.org and Fuller Seminary at fuller.edu. For more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories about our church starters, field personnel, leadership development, peer learning groups, and advocacy, visit cbf.net.